The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be present in this place, that you would work in our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that you would move our feet and empower our hands to live with you and for you every moment of our days. As long as there is breath in our bodies, Lord, we pray that our breath would be borne up by you, God, by your spirit, by your breath by your life-giving power in our lives and in this place. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus, and we look to you. And we expect to find you because you do not hide on high, but you come low. You dwell in inaccessible light, but also with those who are humble and lowly of heart. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us in this place now. We would see you, Jesus, this morning, and we come confident that you will reveal yourself to us. We come to you with that confidence, claiming these blessings in your name. Amen. Well, morning, Downtown Church. If uh, I'm a new face to you, my name is Michael Rhodes, and I, my wife, Rebecca, who is the children's person up here this morning, and I were a part of this church for 12 years before moving to Auckland, New Zealand in 2022, and so it is just a huge, huge privilege to have Sergi just put me on the schedule whether I wanted to be here or not. Uh, like in July, I want you to know that Sergi is that ahead of the game, so as I was very impressed by that. Um, but in all seriousness, it is great to be with you this morning. We bring you greetings from the Saints in New Zealand, um, and I want you to know that uh, Rebecca and I and our kids miss you every week. Uh, We think this is our home church. You are our home church family, and we pray for you every week uh, and are just so grateful um, for your presence in our life. So it's just a a really magnificent privilege to be able to be here. And open uh, the word this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. You can start flipping there if you want to. Advent, Fleming Rutledge writes begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark, and that's what makes this text from Isaiah so appropriate here, early in the season of Advent. You see, Isaiah prophesies to people living in the dark. They are living in the darkness of their own rebellion and injustice and sin. Your hands are full of blood. God says in Isaiah 1, you don't even know how to do right. They are living in the darkness of their own injustice and idolatry. They don't even know their God. They are living in the dark of political oppression. They're surrounded by nations that are bigger and stronger than them, and they are constantly succumbing to them to temptation to look for hope in all the wrong places. They're living in the dark. And the darkest feature of their lives is that some know all of what they are suffering is bound up 
in God's own judgment. And in this context, most of what Isaiah has said to this point in the first nine chapters is things are going to get worse before they get better. That's a pretty hard message. Just a few verses before our text in Isaiah 9 this morning, in a world where Isaiah's friends and neighbors are looking to other gods and other lords and other strong men and other political alliances to provide security and safety and peace, the best that the prophet Isaiah can do is this. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. I will wait for the Lord, although I know that God has hidden his face from us. I will stick here, right here with God until he shows back up. That's a hard message to hear. That's a hard place to be living in that kind of dark. And that's the background to our text. So I just want to walk through it with you bit by bit. We're going to go through 9, 1 through 7 in small chunks. Here's how it starts. To the people living in dark. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Advent begins in the dark. Isaiah begins in the dark, in the gloom, in the anguish. But right here, Isaiah glimpses the miracle of Christmas. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. No more gloom. No more anguish. The dark days behind. Now, glory. And this light does not come from lamps or campfires or power plants that Israel can make for themselves. No, this light dawns from beyond, from outside. This is light that the people needed but could not create, could not command, could not control, but must simply receive. Isaiah's hard message has been that God is behind their gloom. Part of the reason why it's so gloomy is because God is judging them for their failures. But that just throws into greater relief the outrageous mercy of God. The people had earned this darkness that they were sitting in, but they did nothing to deserve the light. And God, the merciful one, brings it. On those living in deep shadow, a light has dawned. Let me tell you about the darkest night of my life. Um, I was out with some friends, and we were backpacking, multi-day camping. Um, why, some of you are asking. Uh, if you're asking that question, it's because some of us white folk do it like that. I don't know why I'll better explain it. Uh, I can't explain it to you if you don't get it. It wasn't supposed to be that cold, but it got really cold, and it snowed, and so it took us all day to get where we were going, and we were freezing by the time we got there, and when it gets dark, it gets colder, and so we got into the shelter, and we were hungry, yes, but we were more cold, and we were too cold to stay out and cook dinner, so we just crawled into our sleeping bags at like 6 p.m., 
and ate snacks in our sleeping bags and, you know, just were freezing. And I was in my sleeping bag, I think, for approximately 377 hours before I thought, where is the sun? Surely the dawn is at hand. And I didn't have a watch. I pulled out my cell phone, and it was 9.42 p.m., And what had felt like 572 hours had been about 180 minutes. And I had 10 hours to go. And I thought, man, I better get some water. And I pulled out my water bottle, and it was frozen solid. And in that moment, the beginning of the longest night of my life, it felt like forever. I was living in the land of shadow and gloom. And at some point, I just thought, maybe the sun's never coming up. But then, the light, the dawn... And I don't know if these pictures showed up. Look at that! One of the most beautiful days of my entire life was the shining bright glory that broke in after that long night. In the dark, it was hard to even imagine the dawn. And this is where Isaiah teaches us a lesson. In the midst of the dark, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen, past tense, a great light. But of course they haven't. Isaiah's still living in the dark when he says that. Without ever seeing the dawn, Isaiah says the people walking in darkness have seen. And this is part of the point. Even in the gloom, Isaiah is so convinced by the Spirit that the dawn is coming that he can speak and live like it has already occurred. Even in the darkest gloom, Isaiah can talk like the light has already come because he is so confident that it is on the way. Isaiah continues to tell us about God's light in verse three. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as people exult when dividing plunder. In his commentary, Oswald points out that here Isaiah is celebrating a total reversal of Israel's fortunes. Think about it. They've been dwindling, getting smaller. Now they rejoice because they are being made great again. They've been uh, sorrowful, grieving their failures and the catastrophes they face, but now they rejoice What kind of joy? They've been facing poverty and lack, but now they rejoice like the harvest is full. They've been getting beat up by their enemies, but now they've got joy like when the people achieve a great victory in battle. Isaiah says the light is driving out the darkness, taking back what the gloom had claimed, reversing reversing the fortunes of the people of God from sorrow to joy, from poverty to abundance, from defeat to victory. Verse four takes this further. The Lord has liberated them From their enemies. Look at verse 4 and 5. For the yoke of, this is Israel's, the yoke of Israel's burden and the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. Here the Lord promises to deliver his people by confronting their enemies, by destroying the war machine, by burning the very trappings 
of violence and bloodshed. These people have been suffering from colonizing imperial oppressive forces. And God says, I'm liberating you from all that. The rod and the bar and the yoke will be destroyed. And even the gear of war, the trappings of war will be burnt because we don't need them anymore. Now, I teach Old Testament for a living, and even I was like, what's this Midian stuff about? <laughs> Why Midian? On the day of Midian. Okay, the day of Midian is, is Gideon defeating the Midianites. But again, I was reading the commentaries, and I love this suggestion that the reason why all of a sudden Isaiah starts talking about Midian is because Midian was a defeat that the people of God remembered from their very own history. They could look back at a time when an actual, literal oppressor was overthrown strictly by the power of their great God. And what Isaiah is reminding them is that this light that he's talking about is not some inner spiritual reality. It's not the inner light. It's not like, you know, being able to whistle in the dark. This is an actual overthrow. This is a holistic transformation. This is salvation of people's bodies and communities and hearts and minds. Isaiah says, I, he reminds them of a time when God cleaned up house in real tangible ways to remind them that that's what he's going to do in the future. How? How will God do all of this? That question brings us to the heart of the passage in verse 6 and 7. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace. For the throne of David and his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How will God do all of this? He will do it by providing a son. The light will come through a child, a child who is given, a child whose name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, a son who will be completely identified with the rule and reign of the Creator and King. And this son will take up his power and reign. Indeed, his authority or his government or his dominion will have no end and bring endless peace. Now, if you've heard that text a time or two, uh, don't miss the surprise here. The increase of his government will bring peace. The concentration of authority will bring an end to violence. That's pretty strange, actually. Like in our world, when we see power concentrated in the hands of a few, when we see governments claiming more and more, when we see authority increasing, we are used to seeing an increase in violence and injustice and pain. What is this rule that increases peace even as it increases power? You know, with, you know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, said somebody famous. 
But here God says there'll be a power that will be absolute. And precisely because of that, it will bring absolute peace. How is that possible? Only because the government or authority that this son brings is grounded in righteousness and justice. Did you catch that? For the throne of his kingdom, he will uphold and establish it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forever. And in the Old Testament, justice and righteousness is about defending the widows. It's about welcoming the refugees. It's about establishing a society where everybody sits under their own vine and fig tree and none can make them afraid. It's about justices who can't be bought and neighbors who come to your defense. It's about the good neighborhood. That's what justice and righteousness is about. And that is the central platform and program of this regime. And so when this king increases his government, his authority, it is the increase of peace, of flourishing, of goodness. And I think Isaiah is speaking to the hearts in this moment, not only of his ancient audience, but to the hopes of people everywhere. All of us look out at a world that is broken. You know, Isaiah looked out at the Assyrias and the Babylons and the Persias, these huge empires, these brutal, brutal regimes. And we look at the hostile invasion of Ukraine by the Russian war machine. We look at the devastating violence in Sudan, in Israel, in Palestine. We look at things that are brutally broken in our own nation and city and neighborhood. And we long, we long for someone with the authority and the power and the character to set things right. And we do not find it. That is the long, sad history of humanity. And yet here Isaiah says, there is a son. There is a son who will come, whose throne will be fully identified with the reign of God. And whose commitment to justice and righteousness will be so thoroughgoing that he will have the power and the character to make all things new, to set all things right. And so Isaiah says to us, quit trusting in the latest strongmen. Quit trusting in the latest power. Quit trusting in the latest strategy of self-protection. Quit armoring up and look to the son, the son who will come. Because, and this is crucial, here we come to it, the justice and righteousness that each and every human heart has always longed for, will only come in this way. How does the passage end? And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I don't know about you, but some of us, I think, have gone about seeking justice and righteousness as best we know how. We've gotten involved We've tried to make our neighborhood a little bit of a better place. 
We tried to light a candle instead of cursing the darkness. And you know, sometimes things go well, but all too often we fail. And in the most horrifying moments, we recognize that the darkness without is echoed by a darkness within. And the good news of the gospel is that the justice and the righteousness that we long for, that we work for and fail to attain can come only when and if and because the zeal, the passion, the charisma of God says, I will bring it to pass. This is the Lord's work, first and finally, or it fails. And people living in the dark have spent all too much time trying to light candles and build bonfires and find their flashlights, need to know there is a light that will come because God brings it or not at all. And Isaiah says, there's a son and he's coming He's coming, and I'm so sure that I can talk about it like it's already happened. And where does that confidence come from? It comes from confidence in God. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Isaiah writes to people in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. But Isaiah is confident that the sun is on his way. And it is the consistent testimony of the saints in the New Testament that the light that Isaiah glimpsed came in the man Jesus of Nazareth. That in Jesus, God became human. That in Jesus, God, the word, became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. When Jesus shows up, this man that, the gospel writers tell us didn't look super good and people didn't really get it and he was humble and rejected. When he shows up, Matthew says, this is in fulfillment of our passage from Isaiah 9. Matthew says, when you see Jesus walking, making his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, this was so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. <clears throat> and then Matthew quotes our text this morning, Isaiah 9. And he says, this Jesus, when he shows up walking by the sea, that is how the light has dawned in the darkness. Here is the sun proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. <clears throat> Indeed, for Matthew and the writers of the gospel, Jesus is the son that Isaiah promised, the wonderful counselor, the justice bringer, the righteous one, the mighty God. A few weeks ago, I read Matthew cover to cover, and it is impossible to miss that Matthew sees in Jesus the royal son, the king of kings, the peace bringer, and his kingdom arrives and drives out the darkness, drives out the darkness, drives out Satan and all his forces, drives out sin, drives out impurity, drives out hate. Here is the sun. In him, a light has dawned. This is why we sing in my favorite Christmas carol about Jesus. Words taken from Isaiah. Come, thou day spring. Come and cheer our spirits by your advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel, God with us, shall come to you, O Israel. 
And in Jesus, we see exactly why this king can be trusted. We see why this king can gather all power and yet provide peace. Rome in Jesus' day said that their empire, their regime had all the power and therefore brought all the peace. And the reason why they could claim they brought peace is because they had the power of the sword. And Jesus comes not drawing swords, but ready to die on swords. And when he dies on a cross, that cross is the symbol of an empire that says we can bring peace because we can put down all those who resist us. But Jesus dies on that cross willingly as a victim of these other governments, these other authorities and their violence. And he brings peace and triumph and light, not only by suffering that violence, but by overcoming it. Because as you know, as you hear again and again, when you come back here week after week, Jesus did not stay in that tomb. But on Easter Sunday, he got up. He got up with all power in his hand, having overthrown not just the darkness of exile, not just the darkness of political oppression, not just the darkness of your personal sin. He came overcoming the, overcoming the darkness of death itself. And he brings light as the sun. But it's precisely at that moment with Jesus at the end of the gospel stories that something comes that surprises us. This is the heart of Advent. Isaiah didn't see this part. He didn't know anything about this as far as I can tell. That Jesus, having come as the sun, having achieved victory on the cross and in the resurrection, does not reclaim his world on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, he returns to his father. Yes, he rules at God's right hand. But he does not finally and fully drive out the dark. Not yet. And that would have surprised Isaiah. Even after being with his disciples for three years, it surprised them. They didn't see it coming. When risen from the dead, he went back to the father. Why? Why does the king delay? Why do we have this arrival of the sun and then a time between the sun's arrival and the sun's return. What's that about? I don't know. Not fully. But I think Peter gives us the best answer. He says in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Apparently the sole reason why the king delays is to give space for more people to discover the light. Apparently the sole reason why our king has not set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is not because he lacks the power or the authority to do it, but because he is unwilling to come before giving all, including you and your neighbors, the opportunity to meet this son and receive him as your king. We are waiting, as Peter puts it, for a world in which righteousness is at home because our righteous king rules it. But while we wait, that means that we, here at the beginning of Advent, are still in the dark. What does it mean 
to live in the dark with Isaiah. Let me give you three words. First, to live in the dark with the conviction that Isaiah has, we need to receive. We need to receive the Son. If we believe Isaiah, if we hear his message, we will discover the conviction that although the world looks dark and is dark, although the gloom is real, the dawn is sure. And if we believe that, the first and primary response is to receive this king. It is to come to Jesus. It's to come to the Son. It is to answer Jesus' sermon, to repent, to turn from our sinful, rebellious ways, to turn from our sinful, rebellious ways and towards the living God. It is to take the time that God has given so that we might not perish, but have eternal life in this king. The first thing we do if we live in the dark and we hear Isaiah is we receive the king. And I know, I know that for some of you, this idea of receiving the king in faith, this is difficult work. I know that for some of us, faith is hard. Some of you may have never come to Jesus before and you're interested, but you don't know if you can put all your hope eggs in this one Jesus basket. Some of you may have been Christians for a long time. But faith has become difficult and you look around and you see wars without, but you see in righteousness and injustice within. You see a lot of great people living a lot of great lives and you think, who am I to claim this king as the one way to life and joy and peace? It sure seems like other powers are winning the day. How can I believe in this one light while living in the dark? And I just want to say to you that Isaiah sees your pain, brothers and sisters. He too lived in a world filled with other ways of being that seemed far more successful, seemed far more powerful, seemed far more plausible than sitting around in the dark and saying, the ruler of the world will come and liberate us. But the conviction that Isaiah found when he looked at the scripture and when he listened to the spirit was the conviction, the miracle of faith, that even in the dark, he could glimpse the sun coming in the light. If you are here this morning and faith is difficult for you, if you are here this morning and you have never made a decision for Jesus, all this congregation has to offer you is this, the word of God and the testimony of the spirit that we have seen his glory and we have discovered the miracle that even in the dark, we can find our full hope in the light that is coming. And all we have to offer you, if faith is difficult for you, if faith isn't something you've found yet, is the conviction that we believe that there is life in this son Jesus' name. Come, come to Jesus. Find in the dark the son, the king. If we receive Jesus, as the son, as the king, your second word, first word receive, second word is work. Work for the son. If we receive the son, we go to work for him. Isaiah didn't talk a lot about this because he didn't know about this delay between Jesus' first coming and second coming. So in Isaiah 9, he doesn't emphasize this. But Matthew, who does know about it, talks about it all the time. Matthew says, if you've received the light of the king, and then the king has gone away for a time, then the servant, she better be about the master's business because when he returns, 
He's going to be looking for servants who are faithful to his work. So brothers and sisters, if you've come to the king, if you've received the son, then the second message that Isaiah has for us, the second word, is to get to work. To work for the king. To make sure that we are about our master's business in acts of righteousness and justice and holiness and love and mercy and peace. And third and finally, we'll receive the son, we'll work for the son, but maybe most counterculturally, maybe most important right now in this season, third word, simply wait. We will wait. Because there's something about being people who know that all our hopes are in Jesus and that only his zeal will bring what we long for that allows us to simply wait, to wait in the dark, to wait when it feels overwhelming, to wait when faith feels difficult, to wait when all of our best efforts fail, to wait when we go to work for Jesus and it just explodes in your classroom or in your neighborhood or in your courtroom or on your hospital floor, when it just falls apart in your family, in your home, in your life, when it just goes completely sideways. Isaiah says, you can sit in the dark and wait for the light. And so we end where Isaiah begins. Even in the dark, I will wait for the Lord. And we will put our hope in him. For the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And we, who see Jesus in scripture and by the power of the spirit, have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father. Full of grace and truth. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are walking out of this room into a world where we wrestle with the darkness within and the darkness without. But the benediction that is God's to you this morning talks about the light of God's face shining on you right where you are. So as you prepare to go out to love and serve your neighbor, to bear witness to the God who is light in the midst of darkness, would you stretch out your hands and receive this benediction from the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you great peace now and forevermore. Amen.